Neil, thank you for coming this morning. Appreciate it. Um, good morning. I'm excited about this morning. Uh, we asked Dave Mathewson, who is a prof at Denver Seminary, to come and participate in our question time afterwards. He is a New Testament professor. So uh, think of your hardest questions, text them in, and he will answer them. He, he was awesome last night. And then after the second service, we actually have a forum. Uh, we'll feed you some pizza for lunch, and uh, we'll try to answer some questions we didn't get to and kind of open it up for some back and forth. Uh, should be a fun, fun time. Um, I just so you've, if you haven't figured this out, last week and this week are more like college lectures than they are sermons uh, because of the nature of the topic. So if uh, that bothers you, I'm sorry. But you're going to have to think this morning and listen, and I'm going to give you lots, lots of information. Uh, but I think it's important. I think these subjects are, are really important as we engage with the culture around us and our own thinking as we wrestle honestly with things. Uh, next week, we're going to start the book of Ezekiel, so we'll be back to a little more of what we normally do. Ezekiel is a strange book. It is weird, but it's awesome. I'm really excited about Ezekiel, so you don't want to miss that. Let's, let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that we can be people uh, uh, who are given the freedom to think and wrestle and question, and we want to do that well. Because, Lord, we wanna, we're committed to truth, and we're committed to you, and um, we, we want to, to make sure our thinking and our defense of the scriptures and of your world is in line with who you are and reflects well on your greatness, your, your, your power, and your, your love. So we pray that you'd give us uh, uh, open minds this morning as we wrestle with, with uh, tough things and um, really help us strengthen our faith. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. GQ magazine preached, a, uh, preached wrote an article this week, uh, 21 books you don't have to read. And on their list of 21 books you don't have to read was the Bible. And they wrote this. The Holy Bible is rated very highly by all the people who supposedly live by it, but who in actuality have not read it. Those who have read it know there are some good parts, but overall it is certainly not the finest thing that man has ever produced. It is repetitive, self-contradictory, sententious, foolish, and even at times ill-intentioned. Uh, quite honestly, that's a silly and really foolish comment that lacks any historical perspective. <laughs> the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. It continues to be year after year. Over the last 50 years, there have been 3.9 billion, not million, billion copies. Uh, it was the first book to be put to the printing press. It's translated into more languages than any other book. It's key to understanding uh, a ton of our great literature. It's the bedrock of Western culture in terms of our ethics, in terms of our worldview. It is really the book of books. It has had more impact on the world than any other book out there. You don't have to read it. He's right about that. But if you don't, you're really missing out. And it's far, it has 
much greater richness than people realize you don't discover until you really begin to dig into it. Uh, this, this morning, we want to talk about why you should trust the Bible. When it comes to the whole issue of the Bible, there's kind of a spectrum. Uh, um, on, on one end are those who really attack it and see it as contradictory and worthless. Oftentimes, those people have an axe to grind because they've been hurt by Christians or the church. It's one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum are those people who see the, the Bible as kind of golden tablets coming out of heaven. Um, it, neither of those perspectives are, are accurate, nor are, neither are they very helpful. So we, we want to have a little more objective understanding of what the scriptures is. So what I want to do this morning is I want to to be reminded of what the Bible is, I want us to watch a short video that addresses that issue. And then I want to have a conversation uh, about four key questions concerning the scriptures. Um, and then we'll open it up for some questions from you guys. So if you have them, text them in. First of all, what, what is the Bible? Well, well, two things I want to note about the scriptures this morning. One, the Bible is really a unified story told by many authors over a long period of time that leads to Jesus. And I think sometimes we atomize it. In other words, we only deal with such small pieces of the Bible that, that we miss the larger story of what's going on in the scriptures. Um, we're trying to bring that back to us all the time, but it's easy to miss. But in fact, that's how Jesus viewed the scriptures. Luke 24, 25 through 27, he says this. He's, he's on the road to Damascus. He's talking to disciples. Uh, they're, they're crushed because Jesus has been crucified. And he's trying to give them perspective. And he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things? And then in his glory, he's saying, you read your Old Testament. You should know this was coming, but they missed it. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. The Bible really is a story about him. Now, now what that means is it's not a self-help instruction manual, which is typically how we read it. It's not simply a book of rules. It is a book that tells God's story, and that's its primary purpose. And as you read that story, there's lots to take from it. But it's not just, it's really not about you or me. It's not this self-help thing that we make it into. It's really about him and, and his grand story of the world. A second thing to understand the Bible is that it's a human slash divine book. Second Timothy 3.16 says this, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Even Ezekiel so that the servant, of <laughs> the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. He's talking about the Old Testament, but it's applicable to the New Testament. All scripture is theonupsia is the word there. It's God breathed. And notice what he's saying. He's saying, look, the scriptures were, were not dictated to prophets in a trance. All right? That's not how the scriptures came to be. Rather, the Spirit worked through, breathed through, in a sense, people to write the Scriptures. And thus, 
their writings reflect their personalities and their intellect and their abilities and their thinking. The, the scriptures reflect the humanness of the authors because God was working through human agencies. And what that means is that it's messy. It's complicated. The, the book is not magical. God's providence had to be at work and oftentimes is in subtle and then oftentimes in obvious ways. And thus there, because it's this human divine thing like the incarnation, at times there's tensions and mysteries in the text. And then add on to that, that the book was not really written to us, it's written for us, but not written to us. So there's always a gap between us and this, this text that in most places is over 2,000 years old. Um, so we always have to wrestle with that. So it's God's word to God's people, through God's people, and ultimately it is his story. That's what the scriptures are. Now I want us to watch a little video uh, put out by the Bible Project. If you haven't picked this up, I really like what these guys do, okay? <laughs> And I'm, I really want you to go to their website and listen to their podcast, read their stuff, listen, do their whole thing, because it's such good stuff. Here's their take on the Bible, how it put, put together. So you have to watch their next video, so go to their website. It's good stuff. I'm going to get you there at some point. Um, so questions then that flow out of this this thing we call the Bible, and uh, this notion that it really can be trustworthy. I think the first question often comes, how can copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies be reliable? Uh, Newsweek 2014 in an article, the Bible so misunderstood it's a sin. Uh, Kurt Eichenwald wrote this. He says, no television preacher has ever read the Bible, neither has any evangelical politician, neither has the Pope, neither have I, and neither have you. At best, we've all read a bad translation, a translation of translations of translations of hand-copied copies of copies of copies of copies, and on and on hundreds uh, of times. Um, uh, on one hand, he's right, on the other hand, he's incredibly wrong. Uh, right, we, we don't have the originals, what we refer to as the autographs. But I'm not sure having the original papyrus or vellum, a reed paper or leather paper or a scroll is all that necessary. In fact, I'm not sure it would be even good for us to have the autographs. Larry, I was talking with him last night, made this brilliant observation. He said, it may, it may be good that we don't have the autographs because we are people who like to worship the visible over the intangible. And if we had an autograph, it might become an idol. Um, and I, I think he has a really good point to it. So we don't have the autographs. Um, but when you begin to look at the process and the history um, I think that's an invalid conclusion that he draws. I think a more rational conclusion would be this. We, we can be highly confident that although we don't have the autographs, we have a very accurate copy of what the original said. So we are working with copies, but those copies are incredibly close. And here's the argument people use against that. They say, you know, have you ever played that game of telephone? 
You know, where you sit in a group and somebody whispers a sentence to the first person and they whisper it to somebody else and they whisper it and they whisper it and they whisper it. It comes around and it's nothing like what was originally said. And they said, well, that's, that's the New Testament, the Old Testament, all these copies of copies. Well, that's a terrible illustration because it's not what's happening at all. Do, do it this way. Get your group together and have the person not whisper in your, in your ear, but say out loud what they're going to say because the copies weren't made in secrecy. They were made in public. And say what you're going to say to the next person and then have that person check with you and we put it back to you so make sure that they got it right and the other people are listening and then go to the next person and they check it and say it out loud and they check it. What are you going to have at the end? Exactly what you said at the beginning. That's a more accurate understanding of what was going on. People saw these documents as incredibly valuable. They saw them as authoritative. So when they copied them, they didn't do it on the backstroke. They were incredibly careful to make sure what they were copying reflected what the text was saying. Uh, um, all, because they, they understand how, understood how important it was. And then we have this notion that there are copies of copies of copies of copies. And you know, that may be a bit spurious. Uh, scholars, a guy named Craig Evans has been looking at how long manuscripts last. And, and uh, a lot of times they last hundreds of years, 100 or 200 years. So to say, oh, they only lasted 10 years and they had to be copied and lasted, you know, we have Dead Sea Scrolls that are over 2,000 years old because people wanted to preserve them. We might not have the autographs, but we may have copies that were copied once or twice from, back from the autographs. So copies of copies of copies of copies probably is not historically accurate. Well, let's talk a little more specific about the manuscripts from the Old Testament, and then we'll talk a little bit about the New Testament. Um, you can lay out the, the manuscripts from the Old Testament in kind of a timeline. The most recent one is what we call the Masoretic Text. Um, it was a, a group of manuscripts preserved by the Masoretes, a group of Jewish scholars who took care of this manuscript. Um, they were obsessive about making sure it was accurate. They would count letters and they would count words and from 500 to 1,000, they made sure that baby was exactly right, uh, the Masoretic text. By the way, that's the text that our English Bibles are, are based on, that text. And there's a, a picture of the Leningrad Codex. They would highly decorate them and then you can see what the, the Hebrew looked like there in the middle. I think they have another, that's what they're translating. Um, that's the Masoretic text. Then we have another group of texts that are, are, is the Septuagint. The Septuagint is really interesting because it's a Greek translation of a Hebrew manuscript. But the Hebrew manuscript that it's translating is earlier than the Masoretic text. And the Septuagint was around, created around 200 AD to uh, 200 BC to around 100 AD. It was the, the Bible of the early church. This is the Bible that Jesus, Jesus used. And you can compare the two. And then in 1947, um, a, a shepherd threw a rock into a cave 
and he hear, heard some pottery break, and they climbed down into the cave to figure out what was going on, and they discovered what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, from 1947 to 1956, they discovered 11 caves. By the way, there's an exhibit of them at the Museum of Natural History in Denver. You should go see it. It's awesome. Saw it this week. Um, give you a sense. So now we have Hebrew texts from the, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, what all this does for us is we can begin comparing manuscripts to see how accurate and how close and if we can get back to the original manuscripts in the Old Testament. And here's some conclusion that scholars have, have, have drawn from these three groupings. One is that nothing is missing. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, you have every book from the Old Testament represented except the book of Esther. Okay? And they were taking really good care of the manuscripts. Two, they've realized that there are differences, most of them insignificant, words or letters left out, that kind of thing that would happen in the process of copying. But there are some significant additions in the manuscripts. And when you begin looking at those additions, you discover that typically they are additions that clarify that something's unclear in the text, or they're like cross-references to other passages of Scripture. What they think happened is, is if people copied the manuscript, they'd clarify something and put a clarification in the margin, or they would put a cross-reference in the margin, another scripture that related to that. And then as that got copied, those got moved into to the text uh, um, as explanatory. Remember, this is a human divine document, and sometimes it gets messy. But scholars have worked really hard to discover what the originals were, and there's a whole science of textual criticism on the Old Testament. And the result is what we have is extremely close to the originals. And Judaism and Christianity, including Jesus, have consistently acknowledged the Hebrew Bible as scripture and authoritative. Um, how about the New Testament? New Testament is a little different. We have 5,400. Uh, so Masoretic text, you have about 6,000. Fragments or copies, uh, Septuagint, uh, you, you have thousands. Uh, um, the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, are mostly fragments put together that help relate to that. But when you get to the New Testament, you have 5,400 distinct ancient manuscripts, some whole copies, some pieces or fragments. They come from the first three or four centuries of the early church. At times, when you compare the New Testament uh, manuscripts, you'll find that they differ. Not as bad as people would have you think. Most of the differences are tiny, insignificant, but there are some that are important. Uh, let's talk about the construction of the Gospels and the letters, and then we'll talk about a little more of the differences. The Gospels, the best way to think of the Gospels and how they were put together is as if they are a quilt. Um, there were eyewitness accounts and writings about the life of Jesus and those were put together and patched together to kind of form the four Gospels. Now, three of the Gospels have very similar sources. Some people call it a document cue, some that they read each other. John is from a little bit, uh, from a bit of a different um, tradition. And they're a good kind of overall view of the ministry of Jesus. But I want us to look for a moment at how they were put together. And you see this in Luke. Because Luke talks about the construction of his book at the beginning. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things 
that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses. So there's this group of people who actually saw the life of Jesus and were witnesses to what he taught and what he did. So he, Luke is going to them. Luke was a protege of Paul. He's going talking to these eyewitnesses to make sure that what he produces is accurate. And then he says, uh, first were the eyewitness and the servants of the word with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus was probably his patron who, who was financing uh, this so that he could put the document together so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. This is not legend. This is investigative reporting going back to eyewitnesses. This little phrase, servants of the word, is really fascinating. They've been doing some research in this. A guy named Craig Evans has proposed. I'm sorry, Craig Evans. That's not correct. A guy named Richard Bauckham in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, proposed that these servants of the words were, were people who were assigned in a community to protect the oral history of that community. This was not a literate culture for the most part, although they did have some documents. And this person was given the responsibility to memorize the history because that was more credible and more important to them than written documents. Other people say, well, that may be the case. Or the servants of the Lord were actually the people, and you see this in synagogues, but now in the early churches, who were given the responsibility of taking care of the scrolls. Because they knew eventually they had to put things down in writing. That was the tradition of the Jewish synagogue to put things in writing. And you needed, and not everybody had their Bible, right? Each church had a set of scrolls that they saw as authoritative. And this person had the responsibility to protect those scrolls because they, they were key. They, they were the only copies of the scriptures that they had. In any way, either case, these were authorized guarantors of the history of the church. Gospels. How about the, the letters in the New Testament? Well, as the New Testament got established, uh, the apostles, the core of teachers, began writing letters to different churches. Uh, and, and the consensus is, is that the first letter we still have was written by Paul, 1 Corinthians, around the year 50, 53 A.D., it was interesting that they would take those letters and they would give them to a church and then tell that church to read it in other churches. So they began making copies so each church could have its copy of the authoritative teaching of this close group of apostles and key disciples that were given the, uh, the responsibility to kind of form the orthodoxy, the core teaching of the early church. Notice 2 Peter, and this is really interesting to me. He's writing a letter to one of the churches, and he says, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. Notice what he says. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Amen. If you read Paul, you go, I don't know what he meant there. But notice this, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. And notice what Peter's implying. Paul's writing, it's treated like scripture. It's considered authoritative. 
So the early church understand that the writings that came from that core of apostles and teachers that were very close to Jesus were authoritative scripture. And thus they would preserve them as such. Here's the bottom line. Scholars have done a a ton of work on all these manuscripts that represent the New Testament and the Gospels. And and you can be pretty confident that what you have in your hands is incredibly close to the originals. There are differences, but the differences really don't make much of a difference, especially when it comes to the overall story or doctrine. The basic Greek Greek text that all our translations basically use is is called the Nestle-Allen Greek text. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, they began to explore and collect all these manuscripts. And over that time, they developed a whole science of textual criticism. And these guys put together, and they put together an international team whose goal was to to establish the earliest possible text from all the available manuscripts. And they've put out like now 50 editions and they keep tweaking it as they discover more archeological evidence. Now here's the thing, when you read your Bible and there's a question about the text and the variants, and if it's significant, your Bible typically will put a footnote there and you can jump down to the bottom and read about the differences. None of this is hidden. So you can investigate it yourself, and what you discover is uh, these differences don't really make a difference in terms of doctrine or the story. So comparatively, when you look at the New Testament and compare it to other ancient literature, you're just blown away. Uh, um, The New Testament is better documented and more closely studied than any other ancient document we've ever had in history. For example... Thucydides, history of the Peloponnesian War. We have exactly eight extant manuscripts, the earliest of which is 1,300 years removed from the original. The New Testament, we have 5,400, and they're within, well, at least 100 years. The earliest manuscript we have is about 125. It's a little piece from the Gospel of John. And nothing compares. Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars. We have a total of nine or ten readable copies, depending on how you define readable, to the earliest of which dates 900 years later than the original. For Tacitus, histories and annals written in the first century, two manuscripts survive, one dating from the 9th century and the other from the 11th, 800 and 1,000 years after the original. I mean, the New Testament is just unbelievable in terms of its historical reliability. Well, that raises a second question. So we have these manuscripts. We think we're doggone close to the the autographs. We at least have copies of the originals. Well, how do we know that what we put in the Bible are the right books? In other words, how do we know what the canon is? Uh, A canon here is not the kind that explodes. It's an authoritative list, okay? Um, Old Testament, we don't know who put the Old Testament together, the Tanakh. Uh, um, We do know that the Tanakh is referred to in the second century BC, uh, and you see it referred to in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was the Bible of Jesus. He referred to it all the time, and it's this established canon, so there's not much question about what's in it. You have the issue of the Apocrypha, but that was explained. New Testament. New Testament, we have this fictional story, right? There was a sea of books and no consensus about what books should be in and out until Constantine. And then there was this council of old men with white beards who for nefarious reasons uh, uh, got together and decided what should be scripture 
that's not true. That's not how it worked. Um, there was an early core of authoritative teaching that the early church wrestled with in a very public way. I like the quote from Gilbert Gregg. He writes this. He says, the commonly accepted picture of the early Christianity as a frothy hotbed of diverse gospel writers and epistle writers all vying equally for acceptance until a bunch of 4th century bishops and their pagan emperor shut them down and wiped them out is just sell a book nonsense. The historical reality is that the vast majority of the New Testament documents, especially the four Gospels, were identified and recognized as authoritative extremely early on, and writings claiming to challenge that general consensus only started showing up a century or so so later. They, they had some criteria that they evaluated whether something should be in the canyon, canon, <laughs> apostolic authority, because they knew that that core group are the ones who, who were given the authority to write scripture. It had to be written very early to get back to that authority. It had to have widespread usage. In other words, it had to have gone viral because if it went viral, that meant the churches in consensus said, oh yeah, this is authoritative stuff. And if it didn't go viral, it was an indication that the churches didn't accept it as authoritative. And it had to have orthodox teaching because they were very concerned uh, about it. There was no council that decided what was text and what wasn't until 397, the Council of Carthage kind of recognized what was already accepted. What about all the translations? Um, there are about 900 English translations. You would think, oh, we'll never know what the truth is. Not true. Most of the translations come from a difference of philosophy and people they're trying to re reach. If you can put up the diagram, some people think translation should be word for word according to the Greek. Some think it should be thought for thought. Now, you would think word for word is better, but it's not, because if you put it to word for word, the Greek isn't uh, that understandable. So they moved, let's, let's go for thought for thought. And you can find versions all along here. A New American Standard Bible is very literal, not much fun to read, but great for, to study. The NIV is kind of in the middle. The message is a paraphrase. Uh, there are no really bad translations unless they're trying to write out some doctrine like the J Jehovah Witnesses try to write out the Trinity. But in most cases, all trans the best translation is the translation you'll read. All right? Let me give you one example of how this plays out. All these different translations, Mark chapter 10, verse 50, five different translations of it. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Or throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. Or throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. Or so throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And he, casting away his garment, rose and came to Jesus. We will never know what that meant. <laughs> the idea that because there's many translations, we don't know what was said is just a smokescreen. In fact, the various translations help us because they give us a, a, a broader understanding of what was going on. Okay, um, so we've looked at the manuscripts, the canon, and then the uh, translations. The last question is, is this true? How do you know? Well, I wanna suggest four things. First is that the Bible's authority is not rooted in itself, but in a person, Jesus of Nazareth. He's the authoritative one for our faith. The Bible's just an expression of that authority. 
And the key to his authority is the resurrection. And there's all kinds of historical evidence for the reality of the resurrection. Now, some of that does go back to the documents that we have. Okay? Jesus endorses the Old Testament because he used it in his ministry all the time. And he authorized the New Testament. You can look at John chapter 16 where he gives them the spirit and he tells his core disciples that that spirit's going to work through them to produce this truth. That's why we know the Old Testament and New Testament is true because of Jesus. And he said, well, Nick, isn't that argument a little circular? Are you saying that the New Testament documents prove the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus then prove the New Testament documents are scripture? It's not circular because when I go to the New Testament documents to talk about the resurrection, I'm not saying they're scripture. I'm just saying they're pretty reliable historical documents from any measure of historicity that you use. They're early we have many manuscripts, and even though they testify to some things that grade against the anti-supernatural worldview, they're still there. And they're from multiple sources. We have three synoptic gospels that kind of rely on each other, a fourth outside of that tradition. And then we have Paul encouraging people to go to the eyewitnesses. They're just historically reliable. And because they're historically reliable... They give weight to the reality of the resurrection. And once we understand that the resurrection really happened, then we can say, okay, what did this resurrected Jesus think of this New Testament, these documents? And when he says, hey, the Old Testament is about me, and the New Testament I'm endorsing because of the people I've put in charge as apostles, that gets us to the fact that it's true. And that's the point is that the Bible is God's word to God's people. So we need to read it, believe it, and live it. Amen. I'm going to get Dave up here with Paul. He's going to be our moderator. All right, so we got a lot of uh, great questions again today. We'll try to get through as many as we can in the next few minutes. Uh, but the first one uh, that we got from a few different people is, what about contradictions in the gospel accounts? What do we do with those? That's your field, I'm going to let you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what do we do with those? Uh, just a couple of answers. Uh, number one is uh, I would recommend a couple of books to you. Uh, just because it's such a broad field, uh, we just can't do justice to a question like that in the time we have. Uh, but one of my colleagues at Denver Seminary, Craig Blomberg, has written two books. Uh, one is called The Historical Reliability of the Gospels. The other is The Historical Reliability of John's Gospel. And if you're interested in solutions, proposed solutions to all the suggested contradictions and problems, that would be a good starting point. Now, I, I don't necessarily agree with every one of the solutions, but the point is there are plausible, there are plausible solutions. Uh, people that say, oh, the Gospels are just full of all kinds of contradictions, uh, is, uh, I think that kind of response shows that that person has not thought carefully enough about the Gospels, that 
there are reasonable proposed solutions, plausible solutions to all the so-called contradictions. And uh, just one example that I uh, used in the service last night, a very easy one, uh, is in the, the temptation narratives, the, the accounts of Jesus being tempted at the uh, start of his ministry by Satan in the wilderness. You find that in Matthew 4 and also in the Gospel of Luke. And Mark has it as well, but it's Luke and Matthew that have a lot, the account of, of three different temptations. One of them is to turn stones into bread. Uh, the other is that Jesus would, Satan would take Jesus up on the pinnacle of the temple. He'd jump down and God would rescue him, presumably. And the third one was that uh, Satan would take Jesus to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said he would give, Satan said, I'll give you these kingdoms if you'll bow down and worship me. If you read those carefully, you'll notice that Matthew and Luke do not agree in the order. The last two, the temple jumping and going up to the mountain, they switch. And some have looked at that and said, well, that's a contradiction. Uh, Matthew and Luke don't agree with each other. Uh, the issue, though, is that uh, most likely one or both of the authors, Matthew and Luke, are not trying to give you a chronological order. In fact, if you read the Gospels carefully, you'll note that Matthew and Luke often arrange things topically or thematically. So as long as at least one of the authors, Matthew or Luke, is simply giving you, is, is not claiming to say this is the, in fact, neither Matthew and Luke claim this is the exact order in which the temptations occurred. If they do, you do have a problem. But as long as at least one of them is simply saying, I'm just telling you the three temptations in no specific order. In fact, I would guess that Matthew saves the mountain going up on the mountain last because if you read Matthew's gospel, he has an interest in mountains uh, from beginning to end. Uh, so uh, probably that's why he saved the temptation on the mountain for the last one. So there's all kinds of examples like that that I think have plausible solutions that people that make statements like uh, uh, Pastor Nick had at the very beginning of his sermon that it's, it's simply self-contradictory. The gospels in the Old Testament are riddled with contradictions, they simply have, first of all, they probably haven't read the Bible themselves, but second, those sorts of statements uh, just show a lack of understanding of what is actually going on in the text. And I, I think we have to be careful about the expectations we put on the Bible and the standards we're trying to measure a term. We put our scientific expectation and accuracy on it. But it's eyewitness literature, and eyewitness literature agree in substance but differ in detail. It's kind of like if you have a story about how you met your spouse, and your spouse has a story of how you met, and you guys tell it multiple times. My guess is she tells it a little different than the guy tells it, and the guy tells it a little different than she tells it. You know, the, you know I don't go to my wife and say, you got it all wrong. No, no, and in fact, I tell it differently different times because it's is it true? Are all of them true? Yep, yeah, they're true. It's just they're agree in substance, they differ in detail. And that's true of the New Testament. So, so be careful of uh, you're bringing something that's foreign to them to the, to the text. Yeah. All right, thank you guys. Uh, another question that we received was, what does it mean when we say the Bible is inerrant? What is that? Me. And you answer that because I'll get in trouble. <laughs> yeah. uh, good question. Uh, basically, by that, we simply mean uh, in the original autographs, so, so Nick said, we don't have any of those, uh, but we have 
in my opinion, probably copies of some of the original manuscripts. But, but the original manuscripts themselves, when we know all the facts, uh, did not intend to deceive or made no statements that were in error. Uh, so what that also means is we also need to keep, uh, to understand that in terms of uh, going with the Bible's own claims and, and its, own, its own context. That is not, not forcing our standards of precision, not forcing our standards of accuracy on it, realizing that uh, the, uh, the, Bible, you know, the Bible consists of different literary types, it, it can use figures of speech, it can use round numbers, it can use generalized statements, uh, it, it, can, it can report speech, it can use fictional type of literature like the parables. Uh, the parables are fictional types of literature, uh, uh, fictional uh, stories that Jesus used, just like the rabbis did in the first century. So the, the Bible, when we, we understand it's made of different kinds of literature, it, it makes its own, it, it, it makes truth claims and, and follows the typical standards of precision that were true in the first century. And when we understand that the Bible can use figures of speech and, and um, you know, do the kind of things we do. We, you know, we say uh, the sun rose. Well, we know tip, literally the sun does not rise, but, but why do people still criticize the Bible for making that kind of a statement? Uh, uh, so, sometimes the Bible just makes generalized statements. I tell people uh, when they ask where I live and how close I live to the seminary, I say it's about 12 minutes. Yet my de uh, academic dean does not go to my house and drive and say, well, it took me 14 minutes, so you're wrong, and I'm going to fire you because you're not trying. Trustworthy. Uh, he realizes I'm speaking, uh, making a, just a general round statement. So when we realize that, all that inerrancy means, uh, that the Bible does not make an error to those things to which it speaks. We have to be real careful to let the Bible set the table in terms of the kind of literature it is. I know last week I argued that Genesis is, is not historical, that it's creation literature and addressing the creation literature of its day and takes on that frame to address that. It can do that because it can set the kind of genre it won't. We always come with our, well, it's got to be history. Well, the Bible is not all history, and it gives you hints of what kind of literature is. Job may be historical, may not be historical. Uh, it's, it, I think the way the Bible is constructed at, at the beginning when he talks about the land of us is telling you that's not the point. That's okay. We can use parables. We can use genre. But what it's intending to teach, that's inerrant. That's that's true, uh, but we got to let it set the table for, for the kind of literature it is. Awesome. Um, and we have about enough time for one more question that I think kind of flows out of that. We received a lot of, of questions about this, but how can we trust that those who put together the Bible didn't leave things out that were contradictory to their agenda? And what do we do with those claims and, and that thought? I, I think... Um, uh, uh, Pastor Nick showed there, especially in the New Testament, that there were f at least four criteria for what books were considered scripture. Uh, the most important one was that uh, those books that were universally recognized. So whether someone liked a book or not really didn't matter. And there are examples of in the first few centuries of someone that questioned a book. Yet they, or they may not have liked it or thought they had issues with it, but they still accepted scripture because Christianity in general did. Uh, so so um, I, I, I think 
Often what you hear is, well, uh, there, there were no accepted books, and basically the, the canon of Scripture that we have, the list of New Testament books, were basically the winners in the debate. So politically, there, there's a lot of power brokering going on, and the winners, the most powerful, decided the canon. Uh, there is an element of truth that, in that, well, sometimes the winners deserve to win. <laughs> uh, you know, who, whether it's an NBA tournament or the World Series or the Super Bowl, sometimes the winners deserve to win. So there is an element of truth that the, the winners won the day. But, uh, again, this is not some individual or some group deciding or uh, the notion that the Emperor Constantine, you may have heard of that, the notion that the Emperor Constantine decided simply lacks any historical support at all. Uh, but, but rather what happened is a recognition that these are the documents that the church recognizes and uh, I think understanding that God chose to work through very human means, as pa Pastor Nick said, that God's spirit worked through the church at large to, deter to decide these are the documents we will accept at scripture. Whether some individual agreed with that or not didn't matter. Uh, they, what was important was the church at large heard in these texts the Word of God speaking, the church at large recognized these documents precisely as the Word of God. And I think that's what moves us away from uh, someone only including those books that supported their agenda or leaving out books that, that didn't. I think an assumption that's not stated in is that those winners, you know, they, they had nefarious purposes behind and were motivated in a negative way. Well, that's not true. They're trying to protect the core doctrine of the church that they believe Jesus taught. That's what motivated them, and that's what they wrestled with. It wasn't their personal preference or some political agenda. It was this commitment to the orthodoxy and vibrancy of the early church and what the accepted teachings were. It wasn't nefarious. Okay, that's great. And then I'm told that we had another question come in uh, that we want to take the time to address. So um, where should I start reading the Bible for the first time, and what is the best way to understand what it contains? I think that's an important question um, for a lot of us. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I still think, I still think one of the best places to start is with the Gospels. Just start with Matthew and read straight through. And, and then I think, too, read the, what, what kind of literature do you enjoy? There's narrative, there's prophecy, there's poetry and the Psalms. Uh, read some of those as well. So get a broad sampling. And, and that kind of answers the second part, what's the best way to understand what it contains, is read it, read it widely. Find a translation that you find easy to read. Mm -hmm. That, that's understandable and, and read as widely as possible. My, my suggestion would be start with the Gospels and then start to branch out from there and read, get a good sampling of what it is you find in the Bible and the different types of literature and what they say and to start to grasp, as, uh, I think Pastor Nick is right, uh, the, the entirety of scripture tells a, a narrative, there's a meta-narrative or a story that unifies it and try to, try to get a sense of what that is and how the different types of literature testify to that and contribute to that. 
I would just add, if you're not a reader, try listening to it. Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of things, and you're in your car a long time. Uh, listen to it. You'll pick up a whole different process, and, and I think that's a great way to go. It. And then I'm going to push you back to the Bible Project. Uh, it will help you understand because it gives you overviews of books and themes and reminds you of that big story. It's, it's, it's one of the best resources I've come across uh, that's simple and yet, yet really profound in its understanding. So... I think that it's a help, but listen to it as well. All right, thank you, Dr. Matthewson and Nick for kind of fielding some of those questions. We really appreciate it.